Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you could get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode of Mission Log is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and get up to $200 off your new mattress and two free pillows at helixsleep.com dot com slash mission log mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast episode 413 shadows and symbols Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every single episode of Star Trek to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein with or without the help of a baseball and see if they withstand the test of time. This week, Shadows and Symbols, the one where Ezri Dax helps Captain Sisko help her help him help her help him we'll be back with john and trivia in a moment but here are a few different ways to reach out and contact us mission log is a conversation about star trek and that's why we want to hear from you use mission log pod to give us a like and a share on facebook and twitter then follow and rate us at apple podcasts to help others find the show you can call us on skype at mission log pod or by dialing 323-522- 5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now to help us decipher the symbols amidst the shadows, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. I do appreciate it, Norman. Thank you for helping me. Trivia for Shadows and Symbols, well, it was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. Uh, just, you know, no surprise there, because they kind of need to finish what they started. And we do want to give some credit to Rene Echeverria, who was the inspiration of how to change up the Dax character. More on that in a moment. This was directed by Alan Croker. A good choice here. You may remember that he closed out last season with Tears of the Prophets. Uh, let's see, we do have a reference to a real book, Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer in Kiss Me Deadly, published in 1952. Of course, there have been numerous reprints and TV shows based on the Mike Hammer stories. Lots of location shooting in this episode to point out. All those desert scenes on Tyree were shot in the desert near Palmdale, California. That's about 
45 minutes north of Los Angeles. And once you get past the Angeles National Forest, well, you've got an awful lot of desert to pick from. Let's talk about our guest stars. Well, we talked about all those returning and new guest stars last week. So this time, let's finally say hello to a new regular cast member who we get to spend some more time with. That would be Nicole DeBoer. There was a lot to consider when casting a new Dax, and the character traits had not fully been fleshed out. So once they decided on a direction, it was much easier to narrow down the candidates. And that was really Rene, where he came in and decided the shape of this character's psychology. Nicole had mostly been working in her native Canada, shows like Kids in the Hall and even some sci-fi with shows like Mission Genesis. She was at work on another show, Dooley Gardens, when the audition came for Star Trek DS9. And that was at the insistence of Hans Beimler, who already knew Nicole and her work. And they put her on tape, as the casting directors would do for anyone. The producers at DS9 loved her and flew her out to L.A. for a follow-up. And very shortly after, Nicole found herself as the newest in the long line of Daxes that we've gotten to know on DS9. Coincidentally, she was in another sci-fi series called Beyond Reality, several episodes of which were directed by Alan Croker. Neither had any idea that they would be working with each other when the decisions were made for this episode of DS9. Has the trail gone out of your life? Need a new DAX delivered to your door? Call Fax at DAX, and we'll fax you a new DAX right away. Prologue. Last time on Deep Space Nine, we met a strange young Trill woman in a Starfleet uniform who came looking for Captain Benjamin Sisko at his father's restaurant in New Orleans. Upon finding him, she introduces herself as Dax, but not Jadzia Dax. Her name is Ezri, and she is the Dax symbiont's new host. From what she remembers, the Dax symbiont was en route to the Trill homeworld, but took a turn for the worse. Ezri being the only Trill serving on board the USS Destiny, was the Dax Symbiont's only chance for survival. The joining was a success, and the Symbiont survived. The problem is that Ezri isn't a trained host like Jadzia was, and knew that the only person who could help her through this transition is her old friend Benjamin. But all of this will have to get sorted out on the way to Tyree, where Captain Sisko's vision quest is leading him. Ezri is on board literally and figuratively, and is excited for the future to be just like old times. Only different. Act 1. Ever want to make an awkward situation feel even more so? Quark, son of Keldar, barges onto the IKS Rataran, where Worf General Martok, Dr. Bashir, and Chief O'Brien are preparing for a mission, one that is dangerous enough for Jadzia's spirit to enter the hallowed halls of Stovacor. Quark, who also loved Jadzia as much as they all did, volunteers himself and his palm for the mission, as Martok slices into Quark's delicate flesh, drawing blood and sealing the pact with the others. And yes, Quark, it's supposed to hurt. Meanwhile, on the Rio Grande, it appears that the excitement, or perhaps still being unsettled after the joining, has gotten the better of Ezri in the embarrassing form of space sickness. 
At least the consoles are sealed and self-contained. It makes for easy cleanup. She assures everyone that she's fine, walks to the replicator for Arachnogeno, and goes on to tell Jake that she is actually an assistant ship's counselor. Confused as she may be, one thing is certain after she recoils from sipping her drink. Even though Curzon and Jadzia loved Rakdagino, this Dax hates them. Times. They are a-changin'. Back on Deep Space Nine, Admiral Ross tries to find a middle ground with Colonel Kira regarding the delicate Romulan situation on Derna, the Bajoran moon where Kretak's hospital base is also stockpiling military-grade weaponry. Ross cites that he's mired in Starfleet's political sandbagging, but Kira doesn't suffer fools or bureaucracy. She tells Ross that she will blockade the moon to prevent any further resupply ships, and Ross warns her that this is a fight she can't win. As the Siskos and Dax arrive at Tyree, Benjamin suddenly hears a voice saying, Dr. Wyckoff, please report to Isolation Ward 4. Brushing it off, he, Jake, Joseph, and Dax beam down to the planet to start the search, and when they reach the surface, properly kitted out with survival packs and wearing desert survival robes, Sisko chooses a direction and simply heads out. You know, that away. Act 2. Speaking of that away, the IKS Rotaran and her crew are headed towards their mission, which is to destroy the Dominion shipyards orbiting the Monarch's sun. Chief O'Brien says that a focused EM pulse will trigger a solar plasma ejection that will engulf the nearby orbital shipyard in what Worf describes will be a glorious firestorm to illuminate Jadzia's path to Stovacor. Quark, however, wants a little more recognition for his part in all this, and he presses Worf for some gratitude. Worf lashes out at Quark, and at Julian and Miles to some degree, that none of them were ever worthy of Jadzia or this mission, to deliver her spirit into the Klingon afterlife. Martok, sitting in his command chair and with an earshot of Worf's anger, listens intently. Back on Tyree, Captain Sisko has set an almost superhuman pace, even for the fittest of Starfleet officers, as his vision drives him further and further into the desert sands. Dax worries about Jake and Joseph, who are struggling to keep up, but Grandpa Joe is determined to press onward. On Cardassia Prime, Legate Damar is entertaining a special guest, Siana, with flowing bottles of Kanar in a fine display of his military prowess. However, Wayun dismisses her as he has more pressing matters to discuss, such as increasing production at the Monarch shipyards by 15% to create an ample supply of support to retake the Chantaka system. On Deep Space Nine, Kira and Odo are also in the midst of some heavy military strategies, as the colonel is told that she will only have a handful of antiquated impulse ships to stop the Romulan convoys from reaching Derna. The cards have been dealt. Question is, will Kira's bluff be called? Back on Tyree, Sisko is stopped still in his tracks and reaches for his baseball. Lost in thought and massaging it in his hands, he once again hears that same voice which puzzled him earlier on the runabout. Esri, however, tries to refocus Benjamin, grabs his baseball, and throws it away. As it lands, it reminds Ben of when it fell off the piano back in the restaurant, and that is the sign. It's time to start digging, 
right where the baseball fell in the sand. Act 3 Aboard Kira's blockade flagship, Odo tries to distract her with a gift of Kiss Me Deadly, one of his favorite Mike Hammer books. But the answer that Kira has been waiting for comes through visual communications. It's Admiral Ross, with Senator Kretek sitting beside him. Ross tries to mediate the situation as best he can, but after a few tense moments, it appears that both Kira and Senator Kretek have come to an impasse regarding the Derna situation, and are now both prepared to see their hands play out. On the Rotaran, even though Martok is missing an eye, he has two very sharp ears and scolds Worf for how he treated his friends. Martok, also one of the many on the ship who loved Jadzia, was insulted at Worf's selfishness and reminds him that they are all honoring her memory in their own way by choosing to risk their lives for this mission. Realizing that Martok is right, and much to Chief O'Brien's disbelief, Worf makes amends to his friends and to Quark and admits that Jadzia loved them all in her own way and he loathed having to share her affections with any of them. Not one to bask in the moment, Martok reminds them of their mission as all of them stare at the view screen and not just at their target, the shipyards, but at the massive sun, which to Quark's horror and to Martok's and Worf's delight, they will have to get really, really close to for their mission to succeed. Meanwhile, on Tyree, Benjamin is feverishly digging in the sand, almost as if he is a man possessed. Esri watches on both confused and concerned because Benjamin is not just digging, but is talking to himself as well. As he finally unearths an all-too-familiar Bajoran artifact, Ben realizes that this is what all of his visions have led him to, the Orb of the Prophet. But before he can open the box, he flashes into another reality, one where he is Benny Russell, with pencil in hand, surrounded by walls covered in writing. Act 4 Dr. Wyckoff, who looks and sounds extremely like a human version of Legate Damar, finally appears and pleads with Benny to put down the pencil and end this storytelling madness. Benny tells him that he'd stop writing on the walls, but no one will supply him with paper or even a typewriter. Dr. Wyckoff reminds Benny that people who are fine don't write on walls, but Benny keeps on writing. Outside of the vision, Jake tries to shake his father loose from the vision's hold by opening the orb's chamber, but is met with an angry energy that throws him several feet aside. This is Ben's moment. This is Benny's moment. This is the emissary's moment, and only they can see it through. Back on Deep Space Nine, Colonel Kira's fleet is poised and ready for the Romulan Warbird convoy to arrive, even if they are now arriving two hours earlier than previously indicated. Kira declares to Admiral Ross and Senator Kretak that she will fire on any ship approaching the blockade and in transporter range of Derna, and makes it perfectly clear that she has the full support of the Bajoran government to prevent any weapons to reach the moon's surface, a position this is not negotiable. The IKS Rotarn is closing in on striking distance to the Monarch Sun as Chief O'Brien locates a magnetic instability which will trigger the solar ejection they need to destroy the Dominion orbital shipyards. But they have to get even closer. How close? 
finger surface sizzling close. Stovocor worthiness close. On Tyree, Dr. Wyckoff presses Benny further and further to end Deep Space Nine's story. He even hands Benny a paint roller, telling him all he needs to do to leave his incarceration and go home is to paint over it and erase it all. In the real world, this mental struggle manifests itself with Benjamin now furiously trying to bury the orb. Act 5. Benny struggles to ward off Dr. Wyckoff's insistence to end Deep Space Nine's story, while Captain Sisko shoves Ezri aside to bury the orb of the emissary. Just as Benjamin's determination is about to falter, Ezri reminds him that he was supposed to make things right again, a vow he made to his late friend Jadzia. And in that moment, Benny drops the paint roller and fights past Dr. Wyckoff and his orderlies and finishes his story allowing Benjamin to open the orb chamber and release its power, which streaks across the universe, reigniting the power of the wormhole, which casts out and destroys the Paw Wraith in the process. Meanwhile, tensions continue to mount in the orbital space above Derna. Kira readies her blockade for the incoming Romulan fleet, determined to deliver their military supplies to the moon's surface. Inspired by the reemergence of the wormhole, Kira takes it as a sign from the prophets and stands her ground. To her bewilderment, the Romulan fleet suddenly waves off their attack. Admiral Ross hails Kira, letting her know that he was able to persuade Senator Kretak to stand down, crediting Kira's defiance as inspiration for his own actions. Aboard the Rotaran, Worf orders the chief to fire on the monarch's son. And nothing happens. They have to get even closer. O'Brien texts new tech, as the Rotaran now has to evade three Jem'Hadar fighters in pursuit. Martok, in a very sweaty quirk, yells at the chief to fire, as he does so with great success. The sun flares up just as planned, taking the shipyards out and the fighters in the process, in a blaze of glory worthy of Jadzia's entrance into Stovokor. Back on Tyree, Sisko is whisked away into another vision, and is met by Sarah. Well, the prophet that possessed his mortal mother so that the prophet could ensure Benjamin's birth and the role he would play in the years to come. And when he asked Sarah, why him? Why was he chosen of all that could have been? The prophet replies, it could be no one else. With his vision quest fulfilled, Benjamin, Jake, and Ezri return to Deep Space Nine as the captain is met with throngs of the emissaries faithful jubilant upon his return. And as Sisko is swept up in the celebration, Jake introduces all to Ezridax, who walks quickly by Worf telling him that they need to talk as she looks upon all of them with longing eyes and smiles. The end. All right. Thank you for that recap, Norman. And I have to say, you know, just like the episode did, Boom, right off the bat, without a moment to spare, new new Dax, Esri, charming, mm-hmm. funny, nervous, so much going on there, and I will definitely have more to say about her in the next segment, but um, I, I feel like it's going to be a big focus for me on this episode. I really liked how they gave Esri like, this, this completely new texture, mm-hmm. this new personality, this new cadence, everything, so that there was like this defining moment between Jadzia and Esri's yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm all so over it in the next segment. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting to yeah. see. 
you know, I never really noticed this before, and maybe it's because I'm just watching it more intently, but how wonderful is the fabric in Kira's uniform? Yeah. It, it has this really nice kind of almost like knitted texture pattern to yep. it, but I never really noticed it was there before. Maybe it's a new uniform. Um, yeah, you know, that's one of the things that often gets lost uh, because it's TV and it's small and it's low resolution when it was uh, originally broadcast and DS9 is very dark. So when you have a shot where you actually get to see the uniform in detail, it looks great. And they, they always, it, you know, we, we've mentioned how Quark and most of the Ferengi just have amazing uniforms, but there's so much detail, even in something as simple as Kira's uniform. You know, I've been looking at a lot of the background details in these rewatches and in, in Kira's flagship above in the overhead lighting panels, there's this really wonderful Bajoran symbol that decorates those panels that looks like the Bajoran comlink, the com badge, yeah. you know, that, that's that standard logo. They, and I was like, that's they love smart. love their branding. Bajorans love their branding. Yeah. yeah. So do the Cardassians. <laughs> <laughs> One little detail that I really did love when the Rotaran was getting so close to the sun, everyone on board was almost afraid to touch their equipment because it was so yes. hot. Yeah. They, they sold it well like, with the interiors. Yeah. yeah. Like, I wanted to see someone, like, crack open some type of, like, you know, egg. Yeah. And <laughs> right. Cook. He just let, let <laughs> right it cook there, there on the comms panel. Yeah. All right. So I know that this is the thing. I've always kind of poked fun at the whole palm cutting ritual. And I know that there are dermal generators that remove scar tissue. But come on. <laughs> how many palm cutting rituals are there in Klingon, you know, in the Klingon Dude, culture? Dude, I am so glad that you said that. And you have no idea how glad I am to see Quark say exactly what I've been saying all along. It hurts. It's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> uh, now, that really brings us to do we buy that he's volunteering because he loved Jadzia? Uh, whatever. I mean, to the extent that all of Quark's actions are self-serving in some way, that is a little strange. But it's fun for dramatic purposes, and at least they got that in with him expressing what you or I have been expressing all along. So mm -hmm. I... Uh, and uh, ju just to second that, and also, uh, did you find it interesting or maybe a little bit forced that Quark was a real pain in this episode? Like, it wasn't even funny sometimes. It was just... Yeah, I, I, I have issues a little bit. And maybe we'll get into it a bit. I, I have issues a bit with Quark being there, but I also have issues with Worf's attitude and, and sort of uh, the idea that everybody is appeasing Worf at some point, but they did create an arc for him. He does go beyond that at some point, but the, the setup feels really clunky to get all of that going. And especially with Quark, Quark's is kind of being more of a jerk, you know, but, but maybe it's to mm -hmm. balance out that altruistic side here. Um, oh, and I do have to say, I love the reference to Esri getting space sick. It's not something you needed to see on screen, but it's just so perfect and normal and understandable. And it was a terrific little moment without being over the top. And it also defines this whole new part mm -hmm. of her personality. Yep. Right. You now, Jadzi was very experienced, cool, collected, mm -hmm. great under fire. Esri just chucks yeah. <laughs> at the first sign of space sickness. <laughs> so funny. Right? I also thought it was smart that we saw a little bit kind of like for Savvy, like when, when Ben dropped his mm -hmm. backpack and kept moving on, it wasn't like she saw it and said, Oh my God. What's going on? He's shedding all of his gear. He's like, nope, give me those water packs because we need yep. them and yep. move on. Yep. 
very practical. Yeah, I thought that was smart. Um, and you know the the desert uniforms they were in were very interesting. Um, they they're you know it, it made sense what they were in for where they were. And I I hate to point this out because everybody saw it and you just sort of let it go by. But I, the the stain on Cisco's shirt at some point it just it kind of stands out it's like in the first shot uh, with them walking toward the camera you can't miss it and then in a later shot it's just not there and it's like did he drip water on himself was that craft services a moment earlier they're just like no 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 we gotta get the shot don't worry about it <laughs> somebody in the future will take it I out thought, of cg i thought he was sweating through his clothes and, because you know i mean it could have been really hot that's what it i thought makes sense it's just like this weird one little spot and then it's gone so yeah who knows yeah who knows so when Esri asked Ben, like, which way are we going to mm-hmm. go? Didn't that remind you? Of that? <laughs> that remind you of that scene in Galaxy Quest when Laredo says, "All right, which way?" Yeah. And then Alexander Dane looks at his whatever his tricorder. Yeah. He goes, "This way, no, yeah, that way, right? <laughs> like, why not? Just just pick a direction Perfect. and go. Perfect. Why yes. not? Right? Yeah. Damar and Kanar. Oh. That that theme keeps running. What an through. interesting choice." To make because we we have so much of kind of the the broad strokes of Cardassians politically and their subterfuge and lying and all, but to have a very specific character choice like this with him and the Kanar, I mm-hmm. think is fascinating and it, it gives that much more depth to to him. But what a great scene! Well, he loves power and he loves showing yes. it. Yes, but conversely, though, Wei Yun is he's pretty. Not obviously even ambivalent. He's probably uh, ignorant of all of it or doesn't care. It, it, it's so interesting. He doesn't seem to care, but he always has the upper hand. But it, there's like the ease mm. that comes. You, you have the Cardassians and you have characters like Dukat and in this case, Damar, who are very forward with their desire for power. And then you have some like Wei-Yun who has it to a certain extent, but doesn't have to express it. He just has the perfectly placed one-liner, always. And that whole scene, I mean, with Damara's date, uh, Sienna, and, and him sort of working her, just for a moment, this is one of those great DS9 scenes where you just squeeze so much into the most efficient use of dialogue possible. Wei-Yun just saying, like, yeah, she can't stick around because I'll be forced to have her executed is just gold. There's the expression of power without having to overpower Damar. And uh, when she leaves, what a pleasant woman. <laughs> That's just only, only Wayun could say that. I think my favorite scene in this episode has nothing to do actually with any of the major plot points. It's just the scene where characters or actors know their characters so well mm-hmm. that it just seems so natural, even if they were directed to do so. And that's when Odo sits down on the couch uh, in Kira's quarters. I think it was in Kira's quarters. And she just kind of leans into him mm. and, like, grabs his hand. Yeah. They just they just know how to fit together yeah. right. Yeah, the, there, there was a physicality there that felt more natural than what we get a lot on Star Trek. Because there is a formality, even in interpersonal relationships on Star Trek, a lot. Uh, But that was a moment that just felt very real. Like, we can all relate to this idea of being so comfortable with somebody that you you fall into that naturally. I do, okay, in in that same shot or right before that, uh, what what was the deal with the gourds and the squash on Kira's desk? Like, is it autumn? (laughs) 
time is at Autumn Harvest on Bejor right now. It was just a weird, like, of all the things you have to decorate with. Here, here's a bowl of gourds on your desk. And I will say that a very nice, thoughtful gift of uh, Odo to share a favorite book with Kira, uh, Mike Hammer's Kiss Me Deadly, on the tiniest pad he could possibly find. It'd be like reading a novel on an iPhone 4 screen. Just don't. (laughs) Come on, dude. There are so many pads around you could find. The big one for novels would be much easier. And I have to say, just from a production point of view, I love the sequence of that little bird of prey blowing up the sun, obliterating the shipyards. Just so cool, so dramatic. And and they really sold it with the the overheating inside the Bird of Prey. Uh, Too bad about those little Jem'Hadar ships that just couldn't move fast enough with an exploding sun behind them. Question, though, are there any other planets or anything at all that, I, I, I don't know, could be affected by a sun that's blowing up? I just, I just will pose the question. He said it was like a hundred million miles away. Everything would be affected. I'm just, just thinking that's not a thing that you just go do. So, the sun wasn't known as the Hobus star in any other language, was it? No, no, no it was not. That's the thing about sand. It gets everywhere, even into your orbs. Ever try to get sand out of an orb? Okay, we'll get right back to shadows and symbols in a moment, but first, a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, Norman and people listening to this. Um, I'm going to throw out an analogy here for you. So let's say that uh, you're watching streaming services without using ExpressVPN. I'll I'll throw this out there. It's kind of like paying for a gym membership, but the only thing you can use, they say, nope, you can't use anything else, just the treadmill. That's all your membership gets you. You you look around, you go, but you have all this other stuff. And they say, nope, you, you are treadmill only. That would be terrible, right? Well, Using the internet, using streaming services without ExpressVPN, kind of like that because you log into a streaming service, they have this huge, vast library that you can't access unless you have a connection to another country. I mean, if you have a membership to something, you might as well be able to use everything at your disposal. That's what I would think a membership would be for. I would think so, too. So this is how it correlates to ExpressVPN because ExpressVPN lets you change your online location so you can control where you want, say, Netflix to think you're located. Because ExpressVPN has almost 100 different server locations so you can gain access to thousands of new shows. Now this works with a variety of streaming services like Netflix, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and so many more. There, there's just a, a ton of them. So, and you know, it's so easy to use. You know, you and I have talked about how we open up the ExpressVPN app, and there's just a little drop-down menu, and it says, "What's your location?" Well, smart location is based on the general geographic region of where you are, but you can choose from so many different countries and say, "Nope, today I am in the UK, and I am watching BBC iPlayer." as I have done before. So uh, you open up the app, you select a location, you tap literally one button to connect and refresh that page to access any of the geo-restricted shows that you want to watch. 
Now, getting access to the entire membership of a club, just like we were talking about, even if you want to use the treadmill, don't use a busted treadmill. Don't use a slow treadmill. You want a treadmill, right? You want a treadmill where you can just run as fast as you can. And that's why choose ExpressVPN because they have blazing fast speeds. You can stream HD with zero buffering because nobody likes laggy streaming it's right? like the opening credits to six million dollar man you know when steve <laughs> austin is on that <laughs> treadmill and you're just like I, my eyes can't even keep yep. up with how fast he is yeah that's express vpn steve austin style right right so it's also compatible with all your devices so you can use it on your phones which is probably where we do a majority of our streaming or laptops or you know your whatever media that you have at home you can use your smart tvs you can use your pads and most importantly, it also encrypts your data. So ExpressVPN has the added benefit of encrypting your data so you can browse the web securely at those blazing fast speeds. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash mission log. And don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash mission log to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Hey, Norman, I think I speak for, well, you and me and probably everybody within the sound of my voice when I say that we uh, spend a lot of time in bed. I mean, there's uh, there's sleeping, sometimes there's working, there's reading, there's watching TV, there's other activities. I would bet that some of you are even listening to this podcast at this very moment from the comfort of your own bed. But is it really that comfortable? Truly, are you getting a good night's rest? Is it a saggy old mattress with the springs poking out into your back? It's time to replace that with a Helix Sleep mattress from our friends at helixsleep.com slash mission log. And uh, I've talked about my experience on a Helix Sleep mattress. Norman, now you've got one too. And the most important thing in this entire process is to take the Helix Sleep quiz at helixsleep.com slash mission log. It's a two-minute quiz, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. And everyone's unique. Everyone's sleep needs are unique. Helix knows that, so they have several different mattresses and models to choose from. They have soft, medium, firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. And even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size folks, large-size folks who also don't like to sleep hot. Right. So I was matched personally with the Dusk mattress because I wanted something that was somewhere in between firm and soft because I share my mattress with my partner. And... I guess my style was I sleep on my stomach. She sleeps on her side. That is what the Helix Sleep Quiz told us that we should buy. And I love it because I did have one of those mattresses with the iconic springs Ooh. sticking out of the sides. They are, they, I didn't, but it was terrible. <laughs> That's right? It was terrible. What I loved about this whole process, it was fast. It was reliable. It arrived when it was supposed to arrive. The setup was super easy. Anyone can do it. If I can do it, you can too. So you know what to do. If you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and it comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't have to suffer the indignity of going to a mattress store again. And believe me, it can be very undignified. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take our word for it. They were rated number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired. So go to helixsleep.com slash mission log, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. It's got a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. 
So remember, Helix is offering all of you up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. So here we are, John. We're going to try and decipher what's going on with shadows and symbols. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about right off the bat, icons are very important in, in a lot of storytelling. And there's something that it was interesting. It was weird. And, and as soon as I pieced it together, I'm like, it can't be that simple, can it? But I have to ask you this. Mm-hmm. Is Captain Sisko's baseball the actual true orb of the emissary? Oh, my. Okay. Wow. That, that's the orb. <laughs> I have some theories it's, I'd like to throw at you here and throw uh, okay. out to all the listeners. Yeah, it, it, this sort of symbolic poetry. that This is a thing that he's had for a long time that is important to him that uh, is sort of uh, uh, like, like a guidepost. You know, he takes it with him or he leaves it behind, he tosses it around while he's making a decision. I, I love all of that. I never until now made that connection with the orb of the emissary so go ahead lay it on us so i know maybe the way that i have presented it to everybody is a little bit glib but think about the emphasis that gets put on cisco's baseball from the very beginning and think about the emphasis that has really been put on it in the last few episodes so in in the finale of season six in tears of the prophets kira is worried that cisco won't return because he takes his baseball with him mm-hmm an image in the sand, it rolls off the piano and and it activates his vision with the prophets and shows him Sarah. In this episode, in Shadows and Symbols, it also tells them where to dig for the orb when they're on Tyree. Knowing what we know about this episode, is it possible that all of this has been kind of pre-programmed into his psyche, into his, uh, almost like his... Uh, the way that they trained him to be a future emissary, this future emissary, and tether all of that to be activated in some point in time by this baseball. Well, it's a good when thing. The it, moment, you know, when the yeah. moment arises. It's a good thing it was the right baseball uh, that he carries with him and the right baseball that uh, Esri throws, or else you don't want to end up on Tyree. You throw it, and then you'd end up digging in the wrong place. You don't <laughs> want that at all. Don't want that at all. He is a monarch of the sea. <laughs> he is a keeper of the... Yeah, 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 we went there. Yeah, I, I, I like... I, I'm not sure that I'm sold on it having some sort of uh, uh, sort of injected cosmic significance, like the wormhole aliens knew that it was a thing he would always have. But I, I, I like the... Um, I like sort of bookending this idea that he carries this thing with him that is his almost holy item. It, mm-hmm. it is the thing that he refers to in a time of uh, crisis or questioning or contemplation, just as the Bajorans do with their orbs from the wormhole aliens. And could... I, see, I, I know that I'm going to come back to this in the wrap-up. Could the wormhole aliens, the prophets, have actually manipulated all of this all along? Sure. How do I feel about that? Well, I got thoughts. But I want to save those thoughts for the very end uh, because I I wonder what that does then when you say, oh, okay, well, this was all planned from the beginning or or guided from the beginning, you know, before Ben Sisko was even born. This goes kind of like in part with 
the sci-fi trope of uh, taking us out of like the linear timeline and looking at it from kind of like the you know the the mile bird's eye view above everything you know uh, mm-hmm. with with the prophets i have posited the theory that the prophets are doing this because they know exactly what's going to happen when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen and the reason why we as the audience see it in a certain kind of like obfuscated way is because that's the way that they are just doling out the information for the mortal beatings to f- they know that this is going to happen they know that the mortals are going to find it no matter kind of like how uh unclear these messages are it doesn't matter how unclear or how clear because they know that this happened before and it will happen again because they know the timeline to which i could almost come back and say then why would they care because they live safely in that space in between in the wormhole which they can turn on turn off and be perfectly hidden and choose to interact or not interact we got a great tweet the other day from longtime listener john arminio who said it it makes me want to ask what does god need with the space station because Mm -hmm. if they already know all of this information if they already have uh this different viewpoint of linear time and they are non-corporeal then what is the point ultimately with their interaction with all these beings around them that don't share that? But I guess that is more to be revealed. I guess so. I mean, we still have an entire season of, and I don't know where it's going to go, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, maybe, I mean, with, there's this whole concept of, uh, and this isn't just, you know, limited to science fiction, but there is a concept of the gods meddling in the affairs of mortals. It's not new. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's in Greek mythology. It's in a lot of religious history, but this is kind of like entering this whole uh, kind of like this, this Star Wars equation where like the midichlorians chose Anakin and Anakin becomes like the greatest champion since sliced bread, you know, in the Republic. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it's not out of the, the realm of possibility that that the gods predetermined their champion in Cisco sent this prophet in Sarah uh, or to possess Sarah to create. The Kwisatz Haderach, if you will, so that yeah. this journey will protect the timeline for Deep Space Nine, which obviously is the one thing that changed the course of the future of these Bajorans, who I still think that are going to be prophets in the end. Yeah, I still do. Yeah. I still do. All right. But like I said, all of so. this is it's come before and all of this will come again. Yeah. Why do I keep saying that? Because Ron Moore is involved <laughs> with this show <laughs> and Ron Moore wrote Battlestar yeah. Galactica. It's not outside yeah. the, the realm of possibility. All right, so let's talk about new decks. Uh, because I, I'm looking at this kind of from the production point of view as well as the, the story point of view. And, I, you know, it occurred to me that one of the toughest things that a writer has to do is sit down and make that very first decision about who a character will be, how they'll operate and relate to others, and how they'll fit into the story. And with Dax, you've got this almost infinite number of choices to make you know that next iteration could literally be anyone and they went with a not so obvious choice here i mean i i think we could pick apart some decisions okay went with another woman and uh she's young and it, 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 we had this romantic relationship with wharf how will this play out will there be romantic inklings there you know uh, how will that play into it they could have had you know for everything we ever heard about Tarias being this uh, Falstaffian character where if they went with something like that instead but again they had a lot of choices to make and I, I feel like they made this great decision to pick the unlikely candidate being the person who was not ready who was not <laughs> prepared for this at all 
and let her be uneasy and grow into the role. Uh, because right away, it, it's charming, it's disarming, and in the production reality of a show like Deep Space Nine, it was a great way to acknowledge the difficulty of changing an actor this late in the game, and then still, I'll use this word again, you still have to disarm the audience a bit when you do that. Because anybody who over the last six seasons, like us, has fallen in love with this character who is so bold, so strong, so multifaceted, you really have an uphill battle to get the audience to agree and accept that new version, that new character. And she's a counselor. Mm-hmm. Bingo! Assist, uh, assistant yeah. counselor, you know, or or was. And we're sort of, you know, were we getting set up for that with O'Brien's conversation with Captain Cusack? I, I don't know that it's that on the nose, but it's fascinating that in the last handful of episodes, we have these deeply confessional scenes with Cusack, and we have the introduction of Vic Fontaine. And now with Esri, I, we've got a show lousy with counselors, <laughs> you know. I hope it works because we said from the beginning the DS9 is a place full of people who need a counselor. And I feel like this is one of those interesting angles to have that character, somebody who is likable and charming and uh, a little uneasy, therefore she is relatable. And mm -hmm. what will that dynamic bring to the other characters around her? Well, I'm I'm glad that she's a counselor, and I'm glad that a lot of what we've discussed in previous episodes about that, you know, like I said, in the sound of her voice, you know, in his way and other, uh, you know, in the episodes where Vic Fontaine is kind of like our counselor de facto. Mm -hmm. The real trick here is going to be whether or not they actually respect her authority because she is a trained counselor mm -hmm. or if they reject her authority because they don't want to deal with the fact that this is Dax that they're talking to. And we don't know, like, where, what source of, uh, of her professional advice is coming from, from her trained professional, um, you know, uh, obligations as a Starfleet counselor or Dax's memories bubbling to the surface and saying, oh, I know how to, I know how to help them because I've done this before. But so it'll be interesting right. to see how uh, Nicole kind of balances that act between the Dax, uh, I should say Terry's Dax and mm -hmm. her interpretation of Dax but I think that's going to manifest uh, manifest itself a lot with how she is going to interact with Worf because if there's one thing that I was looking forward to at the end of this episode and it didn't sit well with me at all mm -hmm. was how she kind of just glibly walked by Worf and said Worf we have to talk I had a problem with that too and I'm glad that you brought it up Yeah, uh, because Be it, it is so dismissive and that is truly one of the most important things that has happened on this show in the last year, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it was their relationship and her death and now uh, a couple of episodes arc of how Worf is dealing with this. So it was very strange. And it also opens up this really challenging conversation uh, that is that, that does have a real life parallel. Obviously, it's not you know, a symbiont jumping into the body of another person who comes back to hang out with you. But people in a friendly relationship and a romantic relationship come together. They grow apart. Sometimes over time, when those people are reunited, 
are you seeing the same person again? Are you blinded by your desire to be around that person again? So you're unable or unwilling to accept that that person might be different, might have Mm -hmm. changed. And I'm very curious now that Worf has been through this incredibly challenging uh, uh, emotional journey. What does this do to him? Um, And how will the others? And to uh, Julian and to Quark. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we know that Ben would have the easiest time dealing with her because he knew Curzon. And he just had the last few years to get to know Jadzia, but as a facet of Dax that he also knew through Curzon. Mm -hmm. So he has an easier time wrapping his head around all of this, but it's a very different thing from a romantic relationship or romantic desire that somebody like Bashir had or Quark. And they have to deal with the fact that they just did this mission to to come to terms with saying goodbye to Jadzia. Now, mm-hmm. I know that there is a difference between Jadzia and Ezri when it comes to the host of the Dax symbiont. But at the same time, though, there is a part of Dax that, that you know, informed us of who Jadzia is and who she turned out to be. You know, I think that every trill in some way is going to blend you know their their personalities into this other person into the host so they just basically said okay we said goodbye to jadzia in the best possible way and now someone with her name or with the dax symbiont's name walks onto the station and now what yeah so i i very quickly want to wrap it up and just say that uh, this is since we're talking about wharf and wharf in relation to dax um I'm a little bit torn on the Worf plot line here and, and what it means and what it says about him. And we touched more on this in the last episode with the idea of the funeral, the, the memorial being about the people who are alive, who are left behind and how they're dealing with it. And in this case, there really is something lovely about his tribute to Dax and his being driven by his tribute to Dax. And there's something really honorable about his friends there to support him even if there is a weird self-serving aspect to it for some of them. But there's another part of me that thinks that someone still needs to have an intervention with Worf about his single-mindedness. Now, they did accomplish something that was great and necessary for the war effort, but it was a bit of a suicide mission. And how do you do this under the overall strategy of a war? Just say, well, we're going to take this ship. We're going to go out and do this crazy thing with some senior officers. See ya. I find that a little bit hard to believe. And Worf personally, yes, he does come around in a way, appreciating his friend's contributions, but he's still so wrapped up in his own needs. And and there's something really off-putting about that, which is it's designed to be, I get it. But, but the attitude essentially is Worf saying, no, we're going to go where I want to go. We're going to do this mission that I want to do, and you're all going to appreciate it in the right way. You're going to appreciate what I'm doing. In it's, my way. Yeah, in my way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I, I'm glad that they're able to burst that bubble a bit um fortunately we do get that great o'brien line i've never heard Worf apologize to anyone that was a good moment i wonder if it was too little too late and i do like quark's reply which was so in character like i wanted more i went yes because quark it's all about you but we expect that out of quark Worf, we've known Worf for more than 10 years now of star trek 
you know, multiple episodes, TNG, movies, and DS9. And you just wonder at what point will he finally be a little bit less selfish? Honestly, I I actually didn't really have that much a problem with Worf and his character development in this episode. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but it didn't strike me as such. Mm-hmm. What I actually have a problem with more is having the chief medical officer and the chief engineer just go off and do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, regardless of what would happen to them during the context of this war. You're in a war. You're in a war. There's a station back there that is, you know, the last line of defense. (laughs) So you probably need to be there. Let me check the betting pool to see if anyone thought the Romulans weren't up to anything. Oh, nobody thought that. They're always up to something. All right, Norman, as we do at the end of every show, I, uh, I take the nearest baseball off my desk. I toss it into the air, see where it lands. And look, and it landed at the point where we give our final thoughts on whether or not the episode holds up and what are the morals, meanings, and messages. And the ball says that it's Norman's turn to go first. So you get to tell us if the episode holds up and what you thought. So I will, I will see your baseball and raise you a magic eight ball. I'm going to shake it. <laughs> and what does the magic eight ball tell me? But yes, it does. It does? Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Okay. All right. So honestly, folks, I know that there are listeners out there like, just get to the point, Norm. Really. Yeah, yeah. But I think actually this episode does hold up. And here's, here's why. If only for the fact that it helps make sense of Tears of the Prophets and Image in the Sand. This is mm-hmm. the trilogy when you take a look at it. And what I like about this episode is I'm now seeing more of this serialized nature of Deep Space Nine storytelling where episode to episode to episode is giving me a little bit more of a through line to the character's motivations that I haven't really seen so far in the past Overall, I have seen some really nice episodes that kind of tie in together, but this one really takes Cisco's journey from the, the inner turmoil that he's been faced with to trying to make some resolutions, to trying to find some peace, and then ends up coming back to the station after his vision quest. I really do like that about these episodes. I think that the whole storyline with his biological mother being possessed by a prophet that's kind of frisky, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of obfuscation there when it comes to the narrative because it's just, why me? Why not you? Okay, that's a little bit circular logic, not necessarily the strongest in writing, you know, in in terms of like, you know, writing detail. Uh, But at the same time, though, it's, it has to move the story along. I can give that a little bit of a pass. I hope that they resolve a lot of this prophet prophecy stuff very quickly because it is starting to wane a little bit. Um, but at the same time, though, well, let me just put it very clearly. Wow, Nicole DeBoer, Dax, <laughs> amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. If, if for anything, she is absolutely worth watching this episode four because the the moment she steps into Cisco's, I believe that this is someone different. 
I believe yeah. that this character is her own character. I believe that she's struggling with her her role in all of this. Am I her, mm-hmm. his friend? Am I Benjamin's friend? Am I his mentor? Am I his advisor? Am I his counselor? What do I do? Where is my role? Who am I? And why am I vomiting on this mission? Right? It makes her real. It makes her relatable. It makes her somebody that you want to be near, to talk yeah. to, to be a part yeah. of. And she she plays it off. I mean, for pound for pound, when it comes to someone who's owning scenes in this episode, mm-hmm. it's her. Because yeah. we're invested in her newness because her acting ability gives us and sells us that immaturity of this character at this point in time with these veteran characters. And I find it so endearing to watch because it's so very real. The ask is honest and the expectation is very, it's very easy to, to embrace and comprehend this character. It's hard for me to think of a better introduction of a new character this late in a show. You know, mm-hmm. particularly, uh, like I said, when you're replacing somebody who was so beloved, this just they hit all the right notes and, and they used their they used the freedom of science fiction to do that in a clever um, earned way here. So, yeah, well done. I, I think I'm I'm similar to you, but I'm a little less enamored with this episode. And, and I'll, I'll start it out by saying that my my problem here is that it feels reminiscent of my problem with Tears of the Prophets. We're trying to cram so much in here. We have A, B, and C plots all competing for space, all competing for air. And it feels like in the end, maybe they aren't necessarily all getting the attention that they need. Now, they do tell complete arcs with each of those uh, plots. But I wonder what, what would happen if you just, if we were able to spread some of this out, as we suggested in Tears of the Prophets, what if you just planted some of these ideas a little bit earlier? Just let them breathe a little bit. It might feel a little less breakneck. But of those stories that they chose to tell, I really like them. And I like the weirdness of Cisco's journey. And I love Esri. Can't say that enough here. Such a great choice with that character. I love, love, love the callback to Benny Russell and Far Beyond the Stars. 1,000%, dude. A brilliant choice to have Casey Biggs here without the makeup on. We finally get to see him put him in his uh, earned spot in that story. And it was a great way to use the prophets slash pa wraiths as a mix of that story. Absolutely inspired. Because Far Beyond the Stars, it is great. It stands on its own. But when we're asking, okay, what actually do the prophets have to do with any of this? Now we give it a little bit more payoff. And, uh, and I really love that. I feel like the other stories just sort of wrap up because they needed to wrap up. Did we really learn something about Kira that we didn't already know? She's tough. We, yeah, we know that. Or did we learn something about the Romulans that we didn't already know? Was the resolution there clever or unique, or was it just a stare down? So I'm torn. I enjoyed this episode, and I like most of what happens. But I was so relieved at the change in pacing with the previous episode, Image in the Sand, 
that this one felt like another random turn. Mm-hmm. So it is very good in terms of fleshing out the story. To me, it's not so good in terms of pacing. But I will say this. I enjoyed this one just much more on a gut level than I did Tears of the Prophets. So that that's the ranking there for me. You know, I, I think as far as just a, a piece of TV drama, if you had to treat these purely on their own, um, I think Image in the Sand is very strong because it's so introspective and character focused. I think this one works better just on an entertainment enjoyment level and uh, Tears of the Prophets I had the biggest problem with. But that said, I I do appreciate that three-story arc that we got here. Now let's talk about messages because as we have reiterated the last couple of episodes, we're talking about a lot of plot-heavy storytelling. Uh, what do we make of it? This is what I said about Image in the Sand and, and much to uh, my kind of like final analysis of Tears of the Prophets. You're absolutely right. I agree with what you're saying about these last three episodes are so heavily plot-driven that mm. for necessity, there aren't really the easiest morals and meanings and messages to find as hard as we try to find them because that is at the at the crux of our show at the end here. Mm-hmm. But because this is essentially the third act of the death and rebirth of Jadzia Dax and integrating Ezri into this episode, it was really difficult for me to really comb through this episode to find a moral or meaning or message that I felt that was worthwhile to discuss because there's so much going on right now moving this storyline forward that you haven't really been able to truly focus on the depth, the moral depth of any one character because they are so driven between cause and effect. Everything is do this in order to achieve that. And in the middle of that is where usually the morals and meanings and messages evolve or develop. But because you have all of these different and tangential storylines that are going on simultaneously, you almost have almost narrative whiplash, as I said before, from going from one to the other to the other. Believe me when I say this, folks, writing this The synopsis for this episode was cut to this, cut back to that, cut to this, cut back to that, forward to this. Yeah. In that process, you don't have time to really develop the the moral center of any one person's given choice or meaning to do that. It is the means. This episode and the last two, for all intents and purposes, are means to an end. And I think the means to an end, we're trying to wrap up where they're going to go with Jadzia and how they're going to reinsert Esri. So I'm not saying that it's a terrible thing to do that. There's mm-hmm. obviously necessity for it, but I just don't see where where I can find something that is worth discussing when it comes to the traditional Star Trek episode delivery of a message from this episode or the last two. How about you? I, I think that's fair, and, and that's what I meant when I, you know, I was talking about where do we actually get with, say, Worf or Kira. Like, we know Kira's tough. We know if there's uh, a stare down, she's probably going to win. And we know that Worf is single-minded, and he might be good-hearted, but he's kind of pushy when it comes to his needs above all other needs. And we got a little bit of a crack in that here, at least, you know, the others got 
some semblance of an apology. But is that really, you know, is there a moral to be found there? Well, no, like Worf is still kind of the same guy. Kira is still the same woman that she is. So I don't think there's necessarily a learning moment there for, for everybody. But here's why I want to go with this, because I, I wrote a note here that is very different from the traditional morals, meanings, messages, because there isn't really one here. But we're at this crossroads with Star Trek that has been building for a long time in Deep Space Nine, and it made me a bit more contemplative. And I feel like, look, uh, for you, for our audience, uh, we, we need to have a talk. So we're going to have a talk here. <laughs> and and I want to preface this by saying that I get it that, that some people, some of our listeners, fans of Star Trek get really worked up when we get to this part of the show and we start asking if the morals, meanings, messages reach our expectations of what Star Trek is. And some of those listeners may incorrectly take that as a kind of gatekeeping as if we're saying what can or cannot be in Star Trek, or as if we're telling fans what they can or cannot enjoy. And that never has been the point. It is not the point. That never will be the point when we get here to this part of the show. The point here is to see if there were any morals, meanings, or messages, or themes in any given episode that are applicable to understanding human experience. This podcast exists because Rod Roddenberry had been told ever since he was a child that his father's show changed people's lives, and he wanted to know how and why. Now, that version of Star Trek fit very neatly into our mission statement more or less uh, than, you know, started to change most purposely after Gene's death. But there have always been threads of Star Trek stories that allow us to reflect in big or small ways on the human condition. And now we've been trying to parse what DS9 has to say in addition to being a well-made sci-fi drama. And we've explored themes of war and family and loyalty and sacrifice and compromise, etc., etc. This single episode, though, I have to ask if it actually changes the premise of Star Trek into something else. Or is it just DS9 or is it just a set of characters? I don't know. I'm, I'm asking it rhetorically. We have a reveal here about Ben Sisko's background that is as important as, say, Luke Skywalker learning who his father was, because then it dictates his course of action through the rest of the story. Up until now, Ben Sisko has been a guy who was saddled with this uneasy responsibility to someone else's religious beliefs, competing with his own obligation to Starfleet. This moment changes everything because it puts the course of action on Sisko as a piece of divine provenance. His mother was a prophet, or she influenced a human to give birth. So Ben is now half God, half human. Is that what Star Trek is about? I'm asking because I want to reconcile it. Is it about people having a divine calling, people who are special by birth rather than merit? Is there something now that has fundamentally changed that we could or should ascribe to Star Trek at large? Or are we sort of not seeing the forest or the trees? 
because this happens to just be this one story, but it happens to be this one story now that we are following for seven seasons about this pivotal character. And I wonder as we go forward, will there be challenges ahead for me, for you, Norman, for people who are listening, maybe for the first time, to reconcile how does this character fit into the overall picture of Star Trek? How does this fit because we're here in this part of our show, into the morals, meanings, messages. Because now the stakes are something very different, and the expectation is something very different, because we just had the big reveal about who Benjamin Sisko really is. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, After Image. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky. Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. The Dax came back, the very next day, the Dax came back, we thought she was a goner, but the Dax came back, she just couldn't stay away. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.